Welcome, welcome. So I, I just want to uh, encourage you forth. I know these talks are uh, challenging or should be challenging because they're taking us to the depth of the Buddhist teaching and uh, we're not uh, sort of stopping you know, at the lesser renters, rentors. Uh, uh, I'm thinking of, uh, what's the name of that game uh, with Boardwalk and Park Place? Monopoly. Monopoly. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're going right to jail, I guess is where we're going. <laughs> I haven't quite, quite figured out where we're going. Uh, the point is, though, it takes courage to uh, move as quickly and as straightly as we are going. Some of you have expressed some trepidation and anxiety about how we're going and what is being spoken about. <clears throat> and for you, I um, offer you encouragement. Just, just listen. Just coming and just exposing yourself. Uh, you don't have to uh, force yourself to go in any direction that you don't... Uh, naturally and with your own time and your own resonance move. Uh, but uh, I also feel that if you put a cucumber in brine, you'll get a pickle. And so if you come in, <laughs> something is going to change in you. Some, there's going to be an influence on you. And it's a good influence. It's not going to be one in which there's a lot of of uh, intrinsic anxiety to what we're saying beyond the first uh, exposure to it. It'll become encouraging and uh, encourage you forth and hopefully you'll develop some interest and uh, some uh, curiosity to the whole subject. So uh, we're on the dependent origination and we're speaking about uh, we've gone through ignorance and uh, mental formations, and now we're going to be talking about consciousness. But let me uh, just uh, clear up some of the leftover um, subjects around mental formation. And I can do that through an example, I think. I was listening today to some music that was familiar to me, and so it had a uh, it had a, a history a memory associated with the pattern, and I was just sitting there and I was feeling the memories arise in relationship to the sound that was being heard, and uh, I could at a certain threshold uh, awareness kicks in when I'm when that happens to me because uh, at a certain point thoughts start uh, circulating a particular memory pattern often an emotion arises with it. And so I was just letting this, I was thinking about the talk tonight, so I was just kind of letting this happen. And I was noticing sort of the unguarded time when I was just letting the emotion arise unconsciously, listening to the music, and then the threshold that was reached when awareness kicked in, and I could feel the subtle patterns of emotion start to arise with the music itself and I could see I just then I got very interested to see what would happen as those as that spread of consciousness started to evoke other patterns as well because it doesn't just start or stop with the 
reactions to the music, the emotions themselves form an encrusted attitude or begin to form an attitude and that attitude itself has a whole disposition of memories associated with it and suddenly you're not just listening to the music but you're on the date with that person you know 50 years ago when such and such and all it just like it just went out and on its own spreadsheet uh, and and so I was just I was just letting it go because I was just interested in where it was going I was just uh, it was just, it was just uh, water on oil, you know, just spreading. So I thought, oh, this is this is good. This, this, these are, I could see ignorance. What ignorance would do was it would it would form the belief system around where the patterns were taking me, and then I would be reliving those times as if those times are really happening. So the past would have a have a tangibility to it. Would be would have a reality to it that uh, belied the fact that it was just the thoughts around this music. Uh, but when the awareness kicked in, that all dissipated. It couldn't form into any assurance or c convincing pattern that led me astray. But I could see the formations. I could see the mental formations occurring uh, just, you know, just on their own, just different patterns within the uh, within the ignorance, just w different patterns as they were arising, um, forming what? We're forming consciousness. We're f was forming a streaming of events that uh, I would call, you know, the content or the, uh, the images associated with uh, my background, m my future, my present, and all of this was forming the sense of me and in its continuation. I said, well, you know, there it is, right there. there. There it was. There was a perfect example of it. But that example, of course, happens to us almost moment to moment. So it's not as if uh, these are one-time arisings. These are moment to moment arising. In fact, wherever our eyes alight comes the stream of events uh, that circulate around that particular knowledge base that you have with that object and from there the emotions and on and on it goes. So I wanted to make that point. I wanted to show how close this dependent origination is uh, and, and, and to really encourage investigation, encourage a, an, an interest in that formation not a, a, an anxiety or a fear of it, but an interest in it. Well, this is, this is forming my life as I know it. This is chapter by chapter leading me to the decisions I make, to the formations that occur, everything. In fact, as I was having that example, a, a couple of things occurred to me. One is that we usually think that emotions arise from the situation, right? So... Like I, I hear the music and then emotion arises in relationship condition to that music I hear based upon the past associations I have with that particular sound. But we don't realize is that often emotions create the situation. Now each of us, and I, I, I deeply feel this uh, when I meet, mostly when I meet one-on-one -on -one with people, 
is that I, all, I want, I'm, I'm interested in your background. I'm interested in the history because I want to know what conditioning is in there and what it, that conditioning is likely to create in the present. And very often what you find is that if you explore the history and the assumptions associated with that history to uh, some depth, you'll find a, a core issue, which I've spoken about many times, but uh, oftentimes a feeling tone about oneself that is related uh, to that core issue. And then you'll find that uh, the person will f develop a, that their life, that their early childhood life will be very much around that particular emotional pattern that has formed into an attitudinal pattern and has become part of their character and how they hold themselves in relationship to the world. And then from that emotion, now let me say that that emotion is arising moment after moment. It's not something that has been uh, firmly pressed in our mind and we can't ever escape it. It's something we bring forward moment after moment through the emotions that arise based upon the relationships to the objects we see. But we carry such an, in, an embellished view of ourselves from those early childhood experiences that we then create situations that verify the attitudes that we hold. Like if we are uh, feeling uh, anxious in our early childhood, then anxiety holds a certain meaning and a certain familiarity with us and a certain organized way that we have perceived the world and we will find a lifestyle, we will create a lifestyle that's anxious so that we can live within that familiarity, within the familiar patterns of self. And I see that just playing out in people's lives over and over and over again. You have to want to escape this thing in order to escape it, it, it because it just see, it keeps self-creating. Or another example would be that uh, you know, you have certain beliefs about inadequacies in yourself and you'll set yourself up with relationships, jobs, uh, circumstances that will allow that sense of inadequacy to, uh, to arise so that you can, again, bathe within the familiarity of that attitude. Okay, so the emotion is actually creating the situations so that the emotional familiarity can pair itself with its past and say, okay, so this is, this is what I deserve in life. And so sometimes you see people having had early childhood experience of a certain emotional pattern, then they find the Dharma and they start feeling the beneficial effects of a more purified mind in which there's metta and love that comes in and patience and generosity. And then there's a sudden turning in which they don't feel deserving of that because the old attitudes didn't just sit, go away just because you were turning towards the Dharma. In fact, if you lean too heavily into, those, uh, into that, you'll kick up the shadowy beliefs and the, and the still uh, present assumptions of what you really believe about yourself, which are those latent forms of early childhood experiences. And then your life quite likely will implode back into those same patterns. It's sort of like, like a, 
a recovering alcoholic who just keeps falling back into those old patterns and has to be, you know, sort of dragged out of the gutter from time to time. Our life may not be as dramatic as that, but if drama played a part of our early life, this is an example, then as those formations become more level in, uh, and calm through the, your meditation practice, then that shadow of deserving or needing or feeling the excitement of or having where your life had more meaning was when the drama was really there. And so you'll find drama kicking in. You'll find and you'll create the drama necessary to, for whatever remains that still hasn't been nourished by the drama of your early childhood, what you'll, you'll recreate that very scene. And it's so interesting how we just keep going through that. We never see that we're self-creating these things. So uh, an investigation has to happen here, an investigation where you're willing to expose yourself now to the formations you're creating and the and from that, the reality you're creating from those formations. I mean, it's not going to end on its own. It's not going to end until you see it, until ignorance, until awareness is invited into the ignorance. Okay, so I needed to just sort of talk about that for a moment, but let me move on now because I want to spend most of the evening talking about consciousness. Uh, consciousness... Um, uh, let me start off by talking about the brain and how it wires itself. Um, it's a closed system. It's more, the brain is more like a TV set, like you're watching a TV set, right? Because a TV set is not a clear depiction of reality, is it? In fact, you know, waves are translated by the television electrical circuit to show an image on its screen. Well, that's what the brain does. The brain translates electrically the currents of, of what's visual or auditory or whatever sense door you're operating from. It's not in direct contact to that reality. It's, it's an electrical stimulation created by the senses in which that is then organized into an image by the mind. And so what we see up here is not the direct relationship to reality, but the electrical stimulations and the reorganization and the coordination of all those different images into the visual packaging that we have. If it's visual, it's in the occipital lobe of the brain. If it's auditory, it's in the um, parietal, no. Is it parietal? Parietal lobe. So, so you, in, those, in each one of those parietal lobes, the parietal lobes and the occipital lobes and the other, they have their own circuitry. Okay, so I want to... Now, the classic definition of consciousness is very important to, to get a feeling for how, when we talk about consciousness, we're really talking about, or can be talking about, three different things. So I want to talk about each one of these ways of looking at consciousness and understanding them so that we can see how they cross over with one another. So the classical Buddhist way, I mean, 
I guess if you have the Buddha's mind, you can see what he saw. I haven't been able to, but I'll talk about what he saw, which I don't usually like to do unless I've seen it too, but in this case I haven't seen it, so we're going to have to just go on his word. He claims that at each sense door, uh, with each sense organ like eye, the, there's a consciousness that's associated with that sense door. So there's the eye consciousness when it sees the object of sight, and then with light and attention comes the image of what it sees, and then a lot of thoughts around that image. Okay, and each sense door, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking, each has its component part within the mind, creating eye consciousness, hearing consciousness, smelling consciousness, tasting consciousness, etc. Now, you can get a sense of that. You can get a sense of that happening if you stand by the seashore. And if you just, okay, you can take it all in, which is not what I'm asked, suggesting we do. We just, okay, for, you close down every sense but one like the sense of sound. Okay, I'm just going to listen to the sound of the shore. And so that brings forth memories that wouldn't necessarily arise if you were just looking at the sea or if you're smelling the sea, the smell of salt air. If you just smell that, there are memories associated with that. The consciousness of smell is different than the consciousness of hearing which is different than the consciousness of just seeing the shore. And so you get a sense that there are individual consciousnesses here, each with an established sense of me within that consciousness. The smeller, the taster, the uh, visual person, or the person who is hearing. And that there are actually seven, six me's that are all moving around in relationship to the sense doors. Now this is what I call egoic consciousness. Egoic consciousness is what in dependent origination uh, they're speaking about when they're talking about consciousness. Consciousness uh, is the, the sense that uh, the thoughts and images and the sense of I, who am seeing, all arise within each sense door. Now something happens there uh, that when we, when the sense, uh, when, when we look at it in totality, when we're standing by the seashore and we're just looking at it, hearing it, smelling it, tasting it, all of those don't feel like six different inputs. They feel like one coordinated input of me standing listening, smelling, tasting, and feeling the sea come in. So that's how we usually relate to consciousness, as the, as the collaboration of all of those different consciousnesses that are each sense door and a coordinated effect call, called me, who is being conscious of the sea in its totality. Okay, So th normally when we speak about consciousness, we're talking about more like the... the uh, the, the uh, psyche or the sense of the mind in its totality rather than at each sense, sense door. But what is interesting is that the sense of consciousness, the sense of being conscious of, can be defined as the ability to have a subjective experience. Now, 
meaning a subject having the experience of. I am conscious of. What's interesting, too, is that when we are conscious, there's also the capacity to be conscious of oneself, to get a sense of oneself in this. And so consciousness holds both the objects, external objects that we are becoming aware of, but it also holds the internal subject of what we claim to be ourselves, who is having the experiences associated with these sense doors. And the beauty of that is that when the sense of I can be felt or sensed in ourselves, you have a sense of yourself, right? You can then bring attention to bear upon what that really is. You can begin to investigate it, to look at it, to inquire into it, to see how it moves, what it does, in relationship to these things. So it's important to use this subjective sense of I in consciousness as an object of inquiry, of an object of interest. What is this thing? Instead of taking it as the receiver of all the different senses as they arise within you, a question I would ask you to consider is who is it that's receiving those sensations? Or what is it that's receiving those sensations? So this sense of collected consciousness, or chitta, or psyche, it's sometimes referred to, what makes it collective in terms of all the other sense door consciousness is as a binding narrative. So when you're at the seashore, you don't say, the sense of me that smells likes the smell better than the sense of me that tastes the salt. You don't divide yourself like that. You say, I smell, I see, I hear, I do it all. So the, the narrative of me, just see if you can follow this, because this is where I do know what the Buddha was talking about. I can lay my own experience upon the table. So this sense of binding narrative is really what brings all these separate consciousnesses together as the sense of me as the overall uh, as the overall controller of our of our minds and body now uh, uh, at the same time and i'm going to i'm going to um, just take shift points of view here because there's a lot going on And one of the things that are going on that we often mistaken is that there's also awareness within the consciousness. Within all of that uh, images and thoughts and sounds and smells and tastes and uh, 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 memories, all of that, all the content that's moving through that, there's also the awareness of the content. Right? Many people miss that. They just think consciousness is that awareness. No, consciousness is the, is the um, content. And let me give you an analogy that shows what I mean. If you had a projector and you put a film in it, the light would go through the film and project the image onto a screen. Now, when we're at a movie, that's what occurs. 
but we don't see the light we only see the images because that's what we're interested in we're interested in the images that transpire on the screen because the images that transpire on the screen tell a story and we're interested in the narrative of the story where it's going the plot the characters etc few of us come out of the movie and say that was a wonderful light that just spread on that screen <laughs> we don't we, we don't even notice the light and so too this awareness that is manifesting continually within conscious isn't noticed because it's the images from that projection that we are that captivate us it's the content it's the 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 images in what I'm saying here is the consciousness the light is the awareness okay so the images on the film the images that we see the images that we know are arising within us all of the attitudes and emotions etc those are that's consciousness but that which sees consciousness that which which is the light that shows those images so that we even know that we're smelling that we even know we're hearing that we even know what we're looking at is awareness and that's where it gets confused is that we don't want to give up the images but uh, if, um, but the sacred that which is sacred that which is uh, spiritual lies in the light it doesn't lie in the images and we keep asserting or reinforcing the images that we see the consciousness and we don't even care about the light and it's not until we are willing to sense the light but in order to do that we will have had to've lost some interest in the movie that's being presented in the narrative that's being being spoken now for instance when i was sitting there listening to the music uh, this afternoon there is a narrative there is a story there was a movie going on in my mind about the nature of that music and the memories associated with it and the rather alluring emotions that were coming up uh, but at a certain point i felt uh, too distant i all i could say is that it feels too distant that you're going out there somewhere and you you're not here anymore and that's what wakes you up is that there's a little rub there it's a it's a it feels distant i can't think of any other way to say it and so that distance wakes you up and suddenly then it's the light that becomes important and you see the images but you're not invested in the images as being the truth any longer and so they don't carry you out they don't carry you away in the same way you would if there was just total ignorance there see so so that willingness to sense the light within our lives awareness in our lives breaks the hold that the images have upon us so then we don't have to follow the dictates of mental formation the domino effect of mental formation as one mental formation offers a, re- a reactive reaction pattern and then we just get lost in that whole react on and on it goes so the awareness breaks that hold uh and so you get a sense then that uh th- this system uh really starts 
nudging you more and more towards the light than towards the image. And that's really what Buddhism, the system of Buddhism is meant to do. It's, it's meant to uh, sort of show us that the images aren't so important or that they're just images, basically. They're just experiences and that for a variety of reasons in Buddhism, one of which is that they are impermanent, they aren't worth chasing and pursuing. And so if you don't chase and pursue the images at the movie, in the leisure of your relaxation and rest, you can begin to sense the light that has carried those images forth. And this is an important point. The light and the images, think of the movie analogy, are one and the same thing. It's not like there are images and there is light. The images are, is the light. It's just light in recognizable form. And our mind gets caught in the manifestation of that recognition and then the whole sense of dependent origination arises from there. But is it possible to look at the images and see light? It's not that you're not going to see the images, you're going to see the images, but you're also going to get a sense that the images are composed. There's only one composition in the world, in the universe. All things are of one essence, said the Buddha. And in the same way as the images I project all you being, which are what? Which is just the circuitry, the neurological circuitry that's coming in and coordinating. There are literally images. This is a television. This is a simulation that we're seeing. It's not the real thing. So you say, how, am I go- how can I see the real thing? I mean, there should be some kind of panic in you, like you're not seeing a real thing. You're just seeing what your mind says is, the, is out there. That's all you're seeing. That's what the television is showing you, you know? So you say, well, how is it that I can see the real thing? Well, the first thing you have to do is to understand that you, what you're seeing isn't the real thing, and then you'll withdraw energy in pursuing the images. So you get a sense that this is just conjured up. This is just make-believe. I mean, when I was sitting there listening to the music, that's make-believe. That's yesterday, this happened, and oh, I remember that. It's, that's make-believe. It's just dream substance. It's just dream-like. But it, when you're in it, it doesn't feel like a dream. It feels like the hard reality of your life. And so as we allow those images to arise, but without taking them to be such factual things then what you begin to do is see around and through them, much in the same way as if you just wouldn't get lost in the movie, and I would suggest the next time you go to a movie, see if you can do this. It's just very hard to do. You're not going, you have to take yourself out of the story, which means the narrative has to cease in your mind. As the narrative gets quiet, so you're not following the story with, with every turn, and you're just looking at the screen because the screen is now, this is happening now, this isn't taking you into the future of the action sequence. And you, so you're settled there, you can begin to sense the light that carries the images. And in the same way, it's very close analogy, in the same way as we settle in with ourselves 
and we notice the conscious expression of things, the awareness, which is not of the mind. Consciousness is of the mind. Consciousness is brain manufactured. Awareness is not brain manufactured. And because it's not brain manufactured, it can show you what the brain is doing. If it were in the brain, it would just be a component part of the same image. It would be another image on the screen. And so as we quiet down and we see what our minds are doing in terms of content, but we're not going to follow that, that script any longer, then the awareness that holds the script begins to be revealed. The awareness that holds the images. And you get a sense of, wow, where have I been all my life? This is amazing. This is, and, it, and it has the sense of being sacred. That's its feeling. The sense of sacredness arises. But if you don't know that about consciousness and you only know about the turmoils of your life and all of the, you know, the attitudinal um, fixations that we have within our life, then you're just going to play those out. You'll just be running story for the rest of your life. The sacred will be missed completely because you'll be trying to become and get over your early childhood experiences. And your early childhood experiences are being carried by you. You're no longer a child. So it's a complete dream that we're trying to wake ourselves up from. Well, how do you wake up from a dream? You open your eyes. That's all. That's all that's necessary here. So we have a sense of this consciousness. Now the third, okay, so the first way we use consciousness, or many of us use it, is egoic consciousness. That is the sense of I am conscious of, and that's what's being uh, uh, suggested in this dependent origination. The next way we use it is the broader, more expansive sense of consciousness, or the sense of mind, or psyche, or the sense of of the unification of all the sense doors and the central me who is the narrator of what's going on. That sense, okay? Then there's a third sense of how we use consciousness, and that is often we, we hear in spiritual literature, you hear about universal consciousness. And that uh, is supposed to be something outside of ourselves. Well, in this tradition, in Buddhism, they talk about awareness as being outside of ourselves, something that's not self-contained. And so those two get confused because they're used often uh, interdispersedly. And so uh, you need to know what you're speaking about when you're speaking about universal consciousness because we get get that confused with awareness. So again, if you just get a sense that the quieter your narrative is, another way of saying what I just said in terms of the movie projector, the quieter you are with your narrative, the more the sense of awareness begins to be seen. And when you have these moments in which awareness is very expansive and you're sort of floating in a sea of it, you can get a sense of it being infinite, that it's not, 
just within body. It's not just an embodied experience. It's something that holds all things. And it's felt that way. It's felt, literally felt, as not being self-owned or self-contained. But because mostly we follow the noise of our life, which is the consciousness and the image formation, we miss that. And so what meditation is meant to do is to show us the quiet. It's to take us into more reserved quietness so that we can sense the sacred. So that we don't get reactive to everything. Every image that comes up doesn't mean something about me. So we divest our reactivity from those images and what's left is that which holds the image. Because that energy that was being invested in the images is now available to be seen and so one of the techniques or ways to, to use this thing is to ask yourself a very simple question, spiritual question. What is seeing? What is seeing? Not what am I seeing? What am I seeing is my conscious images. But what is seeing? What is seeing in this moment? You see, to, to ask that question, you can no longer be centered on the image. You, you're, you can feel the awareness expand with that question. What is seeing in this moment? What is hearing in this moment? Again, not what is being heard, but what is hearing. If you want to know the sacred, these are opportunities towards that. So this limit, limitless awareness receives and holds impressions from the six sense doors. That's what receives, that's, what, that's the medium through which all of the consciousness, the consciousness is bathed in awareness. It can't be separated from. It's bathed in there. And so you always have the opportunity, no matter what the situation, and no matter what's at hand, and no matter what sense door you're using, to reframe the issue. You see how close this is? You see its proximity? Okay, so that's often mistaken or misspoken or other traditions use that as the, consci the universal consciousness that you know, is some kind of fabric of the cosmos. But, which you can use it like that, but you just have to use it in a consistently the same way. And so when I speak of consciousness, I speak of it as the, either the egoic consciousness or the sense of psyche. And when I speak of awareness, I speak of that which holds the images, but again, is not different than the images. It's the same as the images, like light in the images of the movie. But when I talk about that which is beyond the brain, then I talk about awareness. In fact, the Buddha led 
a questioner through that very depiction. He said, somebody came to him and said, Buddha, what is the locus? What is the locus of all the senses? The Buddha said the locus of all the senses is the brain. That's where they all come into. He says, what's the locus of the brain? And the Buddha said the locus of the brain is awareness. That's what holds the brain. It's, it holds, it, it bays, the brain bays in awareness. And the Buddha said, what is the locus of awareness? Or the student said, what is the locus of awareness? And the Buddha said, nirvana, the unconditioned, which we haven't gotten to in this talk. <laughs> so now I want to I want to spend just a moment connecting egoic consciousness to awareness because uh, all of these things, there aren't three or four things. And like I, one of the reactions I have to Buddhism is that, I mean, it puts spreads things out apart to such a degree that they never really come back together again. And so um, there, there should be a, a, a natural bridge between egoic consciousness and awareness. Now, so universal awareness, that which is expounded beyond the sense of self, when that moves in thought, when thought comes through that, and the thought is not seen as thought, but believed in as a thought, then there is egoic consciousness. Okay? So when we lose, when we lose the perspective of what a thought is, I come into it. I, come, I'm, I get distilled out along with whatever it is that the thought is telling me. The thought's got to be speaking to somebody, so I arise with that thought. And so the egoic sense of me arises with a thought believed. In fact, you and I are a thought believed. And when that happens, the images that are created from the thought, because thought creates the images, right? You have a word that you see through, believing that, and that forms the images that the thought latches onto, becomes more important than the light of the seeing itself. The light's missed. It doesn't, we don't care about that. We care about our lives, the details of our lives, the misery of our lives, trying to get over the misery of our lives, having some nobility about our lives, some meaningful purpose in our life. That's what we care about. We care about the encaptured story we're in. We care about the images. We care about the movie. Is it going to be a best-selling? Is it going to be uh, an Academy Award? We try to make it an Academy Award. We love the prizes that our story brings. Meanwhile, what is universally true, what is universally connected, what is sacred, what is present, we're talking about present awareness. In the Upanishads, a Hindu text, it says, so just listen to the commonality of what is being said in Buddhism and in Upanishads and the Hindu texts. Not which the eye sees, not that 
not that which the eye sees, but that whereby the eye can see. Know that alone is Brahman, the universal, the eternal, and not what people here adore. Not which the ear hears, but that whereby the ear can hear. Not that which is known, but that whereby something can be known. Know that is the eternal. You see, awareness itself is your Buddha nature. And so as we move into this, you can understand why the sense of consciousness has such a compelling hold on us because it's where our story resides. It's where we get the juice and meaning and purpose of ourselves. And the awareness is missed. And so what the Buddha is encouraging us to do, he's encouraging us, he's beckoning us to look with awareness, with attention, at each of these links and see whether we can see through the images that bear through these links. Whether we can become dispassionate about how this thing is formed and the way it is formed. And seek what is truly, truly interconnected and universal. And that's aware presence. All you have to do is want it and have the intention to discover it. It has to be a true intention, but that's virtually all that's necessary for your heart to be unstoppable in its discovery. So can we sit for a minute or two? You know, we spend so much time in this tradition talking about the instability of of things. But the, why? Because they're images. Of course an image is going to be unstable. How long can you last when you're just a thought? And you just have to keep thinking yourself into creation. So if there's ever a time when you're not around, then you say, oh my God, where have I been? And you're back around. You just, by reaffirming the momentum of your formation, you generate new energy for it to form again. Now, there are many times during the day when you're not around. Or when an image, or you're not lost in thought. Maybe not a lot, but there might be some times. What's that like, that moment <coughs> in which your consciousness goes in abeyance because the consciousness can only sustain itself through the images it's creating, but in the silence of 
of the narrative, it is no longer creating any images and therefore it all goes quiet. Not that which the eye sees, but that which allows the eye to see. So if there are any uh, questions or comments, I'd be happy to. Yes, sir. Uh, first of all, I can't, if I could get you to say the questions very uh, concisely, and because I have to repeat them for the. So uh, sometimes when uh, this person is uh, feeling the uh, approaching awareness arising, and uh, whatever the object was he was listening to, the distance between the awareness and the object that's arising can feel so distant that it brings up a lot of an emotion, emotions arise, right? Yep. So, uh, I'm, I'm not absolutely sure what happens to you then, but oftentimes when there is the distance from an image, an insight arises, and you see what you've been doing to yourself that you need not do. And the credible sorrow and grief can come up retrospectively when you look back and see how you've been treating yourself and you don't need to treat it. It happens many, many, many times in the course of your spiritual practice. And this is, this is the effect of the insight. It's the effect, but it's a good thing because you're, seeing, you're, you're now seeing yourself outside of how you usually operate and, and mourning how you usually operate and what you've been doing to yourself all these years, so to speak. It may not come up as, a, as that kind of grief thought specifically, but it feels often like grief. It feels like, oh, wow, sadness. Right? And so that, that means that something saw something, some way that you've been holding yourself that the insight caught. And that means that now the nut has cracked. You're never going to seal the, seal the crack again. And that will just keep opening and opening now, more and more. Once you've had that sort of retrospective view and has seen through how it is that the mind contains itself and you have that accompanying sadness then it's as good as over you can't put you can't put it back together again All right? it may take a while for it to move in that direction so that it's a complete 
a com the complete integrated insight. But it's pretty much it's pretty much done in terms of ever going back and convincing yourself that you're this isolated thing once more. Yes. I'm afraid this question might be off topic, but um, does awareness continue after death when the mind has been disabled? How would I possibly know that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, was I try. I try to hold to what answer questions that I know. She asked whether awareness continues after death. My sense is that uh, awareness is much bigger than the body. It's much more embraceive than any element or image within it. And the sense of I am an image within awareness, just as the sense of you is an image in my mind in awareness. And therefore, when the body dies, how can that die, since it was never a part of or contained within the body at all? You see? So I have been around many people who have died, and I have always sensed that something is there that the body's death did not extinguish. Okay? So I sense that. I haven't been through my own death yet, so I can't say that convincingly. But I do know enough about awareness that knows that it's, a, it's sustainable. It's, it's continuous. I don't fear that dying. What I think death is more uh, concisely is an experience within awareness. You're having experiences now that awareness is showing you. You're just so attached, and I'm not picking on you, we're all so attached to body and form that we think about the ending of this experience called body and form as the sense of death. But that which holds or sees the body or form and does not die when the body or form does die may be much, more, much closer to the truth. So then it's an experience within awareness. Right? You say, okay. So as we are going through our death, it might be helpful to move more into the formless than to stay with the form because the form on, is on its way out. And you'll wring your hands and, and uh, quite likely suffer a great deal if you can't divest from that form as it's dying. Right? Okay, uh, I've, I've appreciate your question. She's saying that um, you know that um, as you as I'm as I'm sort of laying out the story of our spiritual journey, it feels like the loss of the images is the loss of everything meaningful, and then all of a sudden we have light. But how good is that? <laughs> I want the images back, and can I can I come back and play with them? <laughs> So first of all, it, that's, the mind conjures up its own story about what that experience is like, and it's not like anything you just said, okay? 
so, so the first thing is that you, you, ne you never lose anything. That you don't lose the memory of what things are, or you don't lose the sense of you. Your sense of you is encompassed within something much greater. It's not thought of as being the central issue or the central image anymore. And that gives you a sense of expansiveness, a fullness of heart and fullness of being that is impossible to speak about. But it so overwhelms the what you did get from the milking of the images, which was pleasure or not. That's what you got. That's all you ever got from the images because because you were conjuring up the images, all you could ever get from them is whether you liked them or not. That was it. And so they never gave you much satisfaction at all. That we thought we just weren't working it well, that we would come to that one pinnacle moment when we could say, finally, you know, right, right, right. But it, it never occurs because how could an image that the mind is creating ever com compose itself into complete contentment when it was something that the mind was doing and then chasing after its own doing? You see, it just doesn't, doesn't ring true that it would ever be satisfying. Okay, so what is the essence of your being? The essence of your being, the Buddha nature I was saying about, talking about it this time, is the awareness that holds the images, is the light that holds the images. So that light sees the images in a completely different way that no longer creates the struggle and tension of pursuit or avoidance that the old forms did. And so it's the interconnectedness of all things, right, has a very different orientation to everything than the orientation of me in pursuit. So what I don't want you to do is scare yourself away by thinking what you, that you know what the light is like, okay? And just, let the, just focus in on what is in front of you and how what is in front of you is completely satisfying. And is it ever going to be completely satisfying? So you're doing some inquiry into that. At the same time, from time to time, rest and relaxation and repose and see if something, something else, some sense of present awareness doesn't come in when we're not struggling with images. Right? I, you could, I don't know. I mean, I, it's, if you just relax your eyes so that you're not focused on a particular image, if you just relax your gaze so that you're just it kind of comes back in. See, when you're out looking at images, it kind of feels like there's a me and chasing that. But when, you're, when you just relax, it comes back in and around. The, uh, uh, the energy comes back in and around. And at that point, it feels complete. It doesn't feel like I need it. Everything is meaningful. It's not that I need to create meaning through images. Everything is meaningful. Even the question of meaning doesn't come up. It's not even a question of whether this is meaningful. That doesn't even arise. It's not, you don't look for meaning because it's like a fish looking for water. It's like, this is it. You know, this. 
Meaning comes from a, a self-pursuit, right? Where your life is striving towards some kind of access to make it worthwhile through meaning. But if life is life, that what you've been doing is bathing yourself in something that is itself intrinsically meaningful and true, then the contentment follows that. There's a natural expression of contentment within that. And therefore, it just doesn't, the questions that are raised from the sense of self-pursuing don't, don't even arise. They just don't arise. That's all I can say. Yes, he says that uh, in some of the yoga texts, uh, witnessing awareness is a witnessing process. And is that true in Buddhist texts? Well, I use the term mindfulness as that witnessing technique, that uh, ability to be able to see from a position. This is a witness. But if you look at what the witness is, the witness is a very subtle sense of selfing, around subtle thoughts about what is it's being seen. That's why it seems as if there's somebody back there called the witness. The witness is really subtle thoughts about where the awareness or the mindfulness is being focused and what's being focused upon. How am I doing? If maybe self-judgmental or evaluative, or it could be, wow, that's very interesting. It could be, but there's a commentary, a commentator that's going on. And uh, that gives the sense of, of of a, uh, of, of a placeholder that's seeing events. So with the deepening of stillness, of quietude, that's seen as thought. And wherever there's thought, there's going to be a sense of you speaking. So that, when then awareness starts encompassing that, instead of seeming to come from that, it starts encompassing that, because remember, awareness has no placeholder. So when you're willing to see the thoughts of the watcher, then they become known. It becomes known as the watcher within awareness. It becomes known. You can say, oh, I, that's interesting. And then there is no place from which awareness resides. Okay, so that's the sort of the culmination of the practice is when awareness expands beyond its limitation or beyond its uh, a, a, a central perspective. And now we have to stop. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.